Welcome. We are glad that you are here. I originally was planning on starting out, as we sometimes do, asking a question and having you turn uh, to one another to share your thoughts on that question. That question was going to be, what's something most people say is important that you seem to have very little use for? Uh, Yet, as I started thinking about like how that might go during this time, uh, it seemed to me that like many of the responses might either be a bit disconcerting, like, oh, I didn't really need to know that you don't observe that personal hygiene, and I'm still sitting next to you for the next 20, 30 minutes? Okay, okay. Um, or just could be alarming uh, in terms of the things that people are revealing to one another. So as in not to pressure you to share that you don't believe in retirement accounts and you're just going to see what happens. Um, I just thought it could be our sort of collective wonderment and thinking around, uh, you know, what is something that a lot of people seem to think is really important, but that you personally might say, I don't know, I have very little use for this. And the reason that I thought of that question is because today in the Christian tradition is what we call Holy Trinity Sunday or Trinity Sunday. And I think for a lot of people, the Trinity itself uh, is an idea, a concept that is on one hand and seemed very important. Like it's like people have fought and bled and died over this concept. It has become in many places a litmus test to say, are you truly a part of this Jesus way movement? Are you being faithful and carrying it on? And yet simultaneously seems to be this thing that we don't really know how to wrap our minds or our hearts around. We don't know how to explain. If you've been in the Christian church for a while, you've probably had lots of well-meaning, like whether it was vacation Bible school teachers or whatever kind of teachers try to give you, uh, here's this you know, this shamrock or something like that to try to explain the Trinity to you. And it just took one or two questions to totally unravel what they were trying to say to you. Uh, and you're like, yeah, so this is like at the center of our faith, this thing that's very important that you can't explain to me. Cool. Uh, and so I wanted us to, to revisit the Trinity today, but I wanted to see if perhaps as we do that, uh, we might be able to find ways to allow it to help us, as our gospel text is inviting us to, to continue to guide us into truth. So whether rather than this being an obstacle to faith, if it could be something that actually enables and empowers us in the journeys that we find ourselves in. Uh, Stan Grins, when, when reflecting on the Trinity, says, the faith of the early disciples required that they bring together three different strands of belief the heritage of monotheism, the confession of Jesus' lordship, and the experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. They were carrying a lot of things, these first people on the way of Jesus. Most of them had come out of or were still a part of Judaism, which particularly after exile had rooted itself in that there is only one God, not all of these rival tribal deities, but there is one true God, and they wanted to be faithful to that, and yet had found themselves caught up in this reign of Christ and understanding what it looks like to serve and live in this experience of this mystical body of Christ and the lordship that that brought for them. 
And though Jesus had left physically also this experience that the spirit of God was still at work in and through them and among them. And so they have all of these three things that they can't deny. For, for them, it feels deeply personal and important. And yet, it's, if you're trying to do the math to say, how do we make all of this connect with one another? You really struggle to come to any sort of coherent understanding of that. Our short passage today is from the Gospel of John, and it's part of Jesus' last discourse. Uh, That's a multiple chapter section of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is kind of spending this last time sharing some final words and prayers um, with this intimate group of apprentices before he is going to be betrayed and ultimately arrested and tried and crucified. And so John's gospel really slows down at this point and allows us to sit in. We as people who might consider ourselves spiritual seekers and followers of the Jesus way get to kind of lean in and be there with Jesus uh, in this moment as well. And in verse 12, it says, Jesus says to these disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. The word basteso or bastezen in Greek there is used for picking up stones or carrying a burden and figuratively of enduring anything burdensome. It may be used of bearing Christ's name, But the present passage is the only one that refers to bearing words, Leon Morris reminds us. Jesus is pouring out his heart to this ragtag group of apprentices who have become his dearest friends. And I feel like Jesus is vibing in this moment. He's feeling it. The mill has been great. He's looking around and seeing people that he's journeyed in life with for several years. They have left everything to try to experience and embody this radical alternative to the Roman Empire, the, this reign of God among them, this global kingdom that Christ is creating in their midst. And I can just imagine the weight of that experience becomes overwhelming. And though they've been through so much together, Jesus also knows that likely they're about to go through so much more apart and so there's some words that Jesus wants to share with them, but he says to them at the moment, it's, it's just unbearable. I have even more. I'd love to keep this party going, but there's just some of what I want to leave with you that, that is going to be too much for you to carry right now. Richard Rohr shares that black or white dualistic thinking is incredibly useful in much of our day-to-day life, but falls woefully short when it comes to such things like love, suffering, death, God, and the infinite. That all-or-nothing thinking often fails us when we're trying to navigate some of life's most unsettling experiences. And the significant part of the Trinity is its invitation into this non-dualistic thinking. We encounter the one in whom we live and move and have our being as a being of majestic mystery. There is much to be experienced with our whole embodied and living life selves. Suffering is ahead for Jesus. Challenging times will soon find these disciples. And perhaps they lack inner authority. When we have not learned to trust our inner experience, we 
often default to others' outer experience. We allow that to be the thing that rules the day for us. And not only is it challenging to bear the unbearable, uncontainable presence of God in our lives, but it's also a challenge to bear the complexity of our own human experience too. Scholars have debated back and forth about precisely what Jesus is referring to. What is it about the words that is unbearable here? But I don't think wherever you land on that, that it, you can divorce the idea of the complexity, the immensity, the infinite nature of God and what it looks like to intersect that with our complexity of our own lived experiences as well. And Jesus has more that he wants to impart, but it's just like, nah, nah, now's not the time. We're going to give it a beat. We're going to let it pause here. A few years ago, I was in Los Angeles with Fuller Seminary at a Catholic retreat center. The leaders of the retreat had arrived a couple days before the rest of us. And during the orientation for the retreat, one of them offered to us that if we would like Uh, They had found a beautiful view of the Pacific Ocean. You could not actually see it from the retreat center, even though it was pretty nearby, and that they would get up early before breakfast, and we could go with them on a little hike and see this gorgeous view. I love breakfast, I love sleep, and I love hiking. So these things were all like sort of combating with each other and and what I was going to do. Uh, But I decided, like, I really want to see the Pacific Ocean. And so, so I got up early. And thought, I hope we get back in time for breakfast. And we go on the hike. wasn't that treacherous or anything like that. It wasn't incredibly long, uh, probably not more than a mile or so. Um, and we're starting to get to the top of this hill where we're told we're going to get to see this vast, spacious view of uh, Pacific Ocean. And we get there and our total, the, all of the view is obscured, right? There's just nothing <laughs> that we can see beyond the fence. And I thought like, oh, wonderful. This is, this is what I, you know, got up an extra 90 minutes early to see. Beautiful. So glad. Um, to say I was disappointed would be a vast understatement. And we stood there for a while perhaps vainly hoping that the sun was going to burn some of this away and we might get a glimpse, but that just was not happening. Uh, And after standing there in silence for a few minutes, our guide and retreat leader shared how this particular view reminded her of challenging times of grief, depression, or betrayal. That in the moment, the intensity of those kinds of experiences can feel so overwhelming that it seems to engulf or obscure all that is good in our world. And it's tempting to believe that all the good in our life has gone away forever. She went on to share that indeed in those seasons, it may be excruciating and they may hang around far longer than any of us would ever hope that they would. But that doesn't change the fact that the good and beauty of our lives is still right there in conversation with all that is obscuring and clouding and weighing it down. What burdens do we bear in our life and in our relationship to God? What seems covered by despair, disillusion, or disappointment? 
What have you come traveled to this place hoping to glimpse? You know, we all got up this morning too, and though it's 1030-ish, right, at Vox, uh, it still took some effort. You could be at brunch right now. Uh, you showed up here, and though it may have been a routine, it may just part of what you do, likely each of us comes bearing something of our own human experience and longing to connect that with some of the divine. James Baldwin says, if the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving. He says, if God cannot do this, then it's time we got rid of him. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to just work our way through the Trinity. And I'm just going to offer some questions that hopefully help us to think about how perhaps our understanding of this triune God might invite us to live in this freer, more loving way. In John chapter 16, verse 15, we find, all that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is talking about the God of his ancestors, the God of creation, all that this father, he's using this caregiving, loving, familial term, all that that God has is mine. And for this reason, all that he will take, that he will take what is mine and he's going to declare it to you. The spirit of God is going to do something that is going to take what is the fathers, and also the sons, and is going to share it with us so that we can participate in this powerful work. So when we think of creator or caregiver God, we know that this is rooted in the innovation of one God for all humanity, rather than just a bunch of tribal deities. But the problem with this so often becomes, right, that Though it's not tribal, we often still become animated in ways that essentially just become, my God is bigger than your God. In fact, some popular praise songs kind of essentially are doing this, kind of like nanny, nanny, boo, boo, or, you know, I, I love the divine more than you love the divine uh, kind of sense, which seems to obscure the majesty and beauty and power of who God is, that, that this father or caregiving parental God of all humanity would be honored as we are making fun of and teasing some of our siblings in other parts of the world or even in our own community. So how might we move away from those kinds of clashes? And yet, often the cases, if we want to move away from that, we feel like to do that, we must actually let go of or weaken our faith that the only way we can be in conversation with the larger world is perhaps to hold on to our spirituality in a more tenuous way. But how might we deepen our own faith identity while learning from and alongside other faith traditions? So this creator and caregiver, uh, we might start from rivals, which is where we saw other religious traditions as maybe at best friendly competition, perhaps feared opposition, or even evil enemies. And if we do that, if we get into that mindset, uh, we can 
try to one-up them, we could try to convert them, or we violently dehumanize them, right? Like these are some of our options for what we do. None of those are great. Uh, and the same power we use to other them also alienates us. We lock them out and also lock ourselves in simultaneously to a view of faith that not only has dehumanized them, but is hurting us as well. So if we want to pivot from rivals to neighbors, then we might start to ask, how might we strengthen our faith identity and or even by enriching our neighbors? How could it be that our faith identity, if we are all siblings, if we have one common source, then how might it be that we actually deepen our faith when we seek to enrich, to know, to understand, to partner with, to work towards justice with those who are in our midst. If we have a common creator and divine caregiver, then how does that change our posture toward our global siblings? How might we be formed in our faith as we form beloved community with diverse neighbors? In John 16, verse 14, Jesus says, he will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So still speaking of the spirit of God, Jesus says, the spirit is all about glorifying me. And in the gospel of John, the glory of God is seen when God shows up in the world, when God's presence is made known, when people see, oh, this is what God is like. So Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit is going to glorify me because he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. He's going to show you the goodness of this life of Christ. And as we participate in it, as we embody it, as we live it out, then we are experiencing some of this glory. A few years ago, I was in San Francisco and I went to Grace Cathedral that was there and they have a little interfaith chapel that also is a chapel dedicated to the AIDS crisis. And I was looking around there and I saw this triptych of Keith Haring. And I, at the time, had never heard of Keith Haring, did not know anything about his life or, you know, that he was an artist or any of that. But this triptych that's called The Life of Christ just fascinated me. It just drew me in. I think I probably stood there for a half an hour just looking at it. And it may be a little hard to see on this screen, but uh, there's all of this massive humanity. And some of them seem to be reaching out to God in ways that might be somewhat hopeful. Others of them seem to be sort of raising their fist or yelling or screaming. We have at the very center, at the top, uh, we see this cross and this multi-armed figure that is holding this beloved child, and it looks like tears or some other liquid rain perhaps is falling down on humanity. And in the side panels, you see some angels, one that looks like it's falling down as a messenger of God and others that are trying to float up. There's, I'm no art uh, critics, so I, I won't try to unpack all of you, but it was all of it for you. But it was incredibly affecting for me. And as I read the plaque and did a little bit more research about it, I learned that Keith Haring, himself a gay man who had AIDS, made this about two weeks before he died. And this was considered his last artwork, and they made nine of them, and so 
The one I first encountered was in San Francisco, but you can find it in New York, in Paris, at other major cathedrals. And it was largely a departure for him because most of his work was not considered anywhere near religious. And yet, in the 80s, he technically died in 1990, as the AIDS crisis was burning through uh, much of the world and as governments failed to respond adequately to that Uh, he turned to religious imagery. He turned to the life of Christ to try to communicate his last message. Similarly, most of his artwork uh, is done in graffiti and subways, etc. that doesn't get to last. And this is one of the few things that he made that was actually cast in bronze so that it will maintain and be something that people can see for generations if they would like to. It was interesting to me that this person who, as far as we know, had not considered himself incredibly religious, still saw something in the life of Christ that spoke to his condition. Even if that was perhaps outrage at the life of Christ, something that wanted to be in conversation with him in these last moments. So we can see in Jesus' own words that he talks about himself as being no longer master but our friend, and that the love of God is manifested in a person who is willing to lay down their life as a friend, as a self-giving friend. So it's rooted in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. How might we move away from power over and violence as justified means to conquer in Jesus' name? How might we divest ourselves of that power and creatively engage in peacemaking? So when we pivot from conquering violence, what we were seeing there initially was spiritual devotion and passion translated into others sharing our same spiritual experience, right? So if you're really energized for God, then it's like, I've got to make sure that you feel the exact same thing I'm feeling in the way that I'm feeling it, brother. Uh, So we could then dominate or colonize and perhaps even homogenize cultures around us. We're in some ways undoing all the diversity of the work of God in the world. And this same zealous devotion that dominates others' differences eventually dominates our own too, putting us in smaller and smaller boxes. And so as we pivot away from that to self-giving service, how might being in Christ be a solidarity that develops cultural humility and curiosity to welcome and learn from others? If Messiah love lays itself down, then what might we lay down in service to others? How do we give ourselves to others without, how to give yourself to others without the concerns of insiders governing that giving, right? Often when we think about what it would look like to reach out to the other, the biggest thing that holds us back is not what the others, the people that are different than us are going to say, but it's the people in our own group that we're worried are going to have something to say about that that's going to hold us back. And so what does it look like even to lay that down? And the final verse uh, that I want us to look at is verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Brian McLaren 
uh, whose book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road, uh, has been something I've been, it's a mouthful, has been something I've been uh, rereading as I was preparing for this. Uh, when he's talking about the spirit, mentions this, Pentecostalism in its first dynamic century has helped us to see, among other things, what the spirit can do at the end of long church services with lots of loud singing and louder preaching. In the next century, we must discover what the Spirit of God can do outside church services all together in the world at large, spreading humanity, vitality, and sincerity in the worlds of business and politics, art and culture, not to mention the arena of interfaith reconciliation. So in the final reconsideration of the Spirit as empowering God, we know that it's rooted in both testaments and empowering to overcome injustice, bring healing, and advance God's kingdom. How might we move away from elite spiritual manifestation to global participation, right? The sense that, well, only those certain inside people are able to hear from the Spirit or experience the Spirit or have the authority of the Spirit to a more democratized, more global understanding of how the Spirit moves in our world. How might we see the whole of our lives and world as the realm of spirit? And so we might start off with an uneasy spirituality where we saw the spirit as either just for the few or for the awkward, maybe if you're being around, I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want, if that's the spirit, I'm not sure that's what I want. Or perhaps even you might just say in some cases, I think that's fraudulent. I don't think there's anything to what those people are experiences. Because if we turn that the realm of the spirit, then we can boast if we think it's for the few and we happen to be that, or we can downplay it if it feels awkward because who wants to be awkward? Or we can just outright dismiss it. And the result is the spirit becomes hierarchical and divisive. Instead, we can pivot to being aware and animated by the spirit. How do you seek and see the truth of Jesus more clearly in unexpected people? See, in the gospel of John, truth is equated to Jesus so the spirit is leading people in the truth, which is leading people into the life of Jesus. This one who lays down his life for his friends. This one who preaches simplicity, who preaches forgiveness, who models what it looks like to say, I'm going to invite more and more people to the table so they can get in on the renewing, transforming life of God. This is the activity of the spirit in the world. What is it like for us to look for that in unexpected people and unexpected places? What does it look like for you to humbly come in contact with and trust your own experience of the divine, to trust that the Spirit of God is actively and actually leading you in this work of taking who God is in this abstract way and bringing it to the unbearable reality of our lived life? How does community clarify, bear witness to, and partner for God's love and liberation? None of this discernment is something we are intended to do totally on our own, but in community with one another. And so as we think about bearing the unbearable, how God stretches us and allows us to be opened to new and deeper and more authentic ways of taking the majestic mystery of who God is and experiencing that enveloping our lives, may we too find that we are held 
that we are embraced, that we are empowered to experience, to revel in, and to share God's goodness. So we ask for an openness. We ask for a trust. We acknowledge that there are parts of our spirituality and tradition that we have been weaponized against us, weaponized against others. And we want to know a way where we can strengthen our faith and spirituality and at the same time decrease our hostility towards others, invite them into benevolence and belovedness that is already theirs, and perhaps even to learn from them how to do that as well. In your name we pray, creator, self-giving friend, and empowering guide. Amen.